Welcome to the Inside Sales Enablement Podcast. Where has the profession been? Where is it now? And where is it heading? What does it mean to you, your company, other functions, the market? Find out here. Join the founding father of the sales enablement profession, Scott Santucci, and trailblazer Brian Lambert as they take you behind the scenes of the birth of an industry. The Inside Sales Enablement Podcast starts now. I'm Scott Santucci. I'm Brian Lambert. We are the Sales Enablement Insiders. Our podcast is for sales enablement leaders looking to elevate their function, expand their sphere of influence, and increase the span of control within their companies. Together, Brian and I have worked on over 100 different kinds of sales enablement initiatives as analysts, consultants, or practitioners. We've learned the hard way what works and maybe what's most important, what doesn't. And our focus is on you as a sales enablement leader and orchestrator. As you know, sales enablement leaders need to really operate in the gap between strategy and execution and blend those tactics and strategies together to be mission and goal focused, prioritizing the right goals at the right moments, guiding the narrative by confronting reality, to drive results by design and not effort, so that you can unlock energy and create momentum by catalyzing change through collaboration. That's our list of what it takes to be a great orchestrator. And you heard about that on an earlier episode. On this podcast, we're going to start with a centering story, just like we usually do. And I'm going to hand it over to Scott, and then we'll introduce our guest. Scott, what do you have for us? Okay, I love this this centering story. So if you don't like it, or if people don't like it, so what? I love it. And uh <laughs> You know, it's partially my podcast too. So I'm going to start out with this. Uh, So first of all, I'm going to give everybody a little bit of hint. We're We're starting out our story in the late 1860s. And have you ever heard, uh, Brian or Amy, of someone named Samuel Pierpont Langley? Samuel Pierpont. Part of uh, Langley Air Force Base. Yeah. So what is that? Tell me more about it. What 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 does Langley sound like? The Air Force Base. That yes. There's, a, there's an Air Force Base named after him. That's right. And also there's Langley, Virginia, where the CIA is headquartered. Yeah, right. that's right. So there's a lot actually uh, named after Langley. That's, that's because of Samuel Pierpont Langley. And Samuel Pierpont Lang- Langley, his story, we'll, we'll get to how this, uh, how this matters here in a minute because it's pretty interesting. In the 1860s, he took over the Allegheny Observatory in Pittsburgh. They were completely broke. They pretty much didn't have any working materials. And by 1868, he'd raised funding together. He'd done a lot of uh, analysis and came up with the Allegheny time system. Around this time, as you guys, as everybody knows, the railroad uh, industry is exploding. And one of the things that was really difficult is how do you tell time? So he devised a really hyper-accurate timing system that he would use the telegraph to to dispatch at the morning and at night the exact timetables that were used to run all the trains. And that became a profit center for the Allegheny Observatory between 1868 and 1883 when the U.S. government took that over and had taxpayers fund it. So that's pretty smart. Then he went on to, do, um, to, to keep doing that, that research, and then he won the top astrophysical awards in the U.S. and in France in 1886 and 1889, respectively. And here's where the story becomes very interesting, and then we're going to hear, hear about some people everybody knows about. 
1896, he created the first steam-powered glider over the Potomac. He had a steam engine. It was the first sort of um, unmanned propulsion unit. And the government, he had friends like by this time, Alexander Graham Bell took a picture of this. You can go find this on the, on the internet, t- took a picture of this photo in 1896. Uh, Andrew Carnegie was also his friend. By this time in 1896, he was the, the head of the Smithsonian Institute, which a lot of people have heard about. And the opportunity uh, of creating man flight was really a big deal. So he got, he raised $70,000. And if this is before 1900, so if you adjust for inflation, that's basically a $2 million seed fund, <laughs> you know, if you will, uh, to get flight. Uh, he, he hired a, a bunch of teams of other people who were similarly well-represented and well-respected to him. But was he the first person to fly? No. No. The Wright brothers were. And in contrast, the Wright brothers are two guys out of Dayton, Ohio. Not, neither of them have a college education. None of the people who worked on it were a college education. And they had zero dollars. Yet, they were the first people to, fly, to create a manned pl- a fl- plane and fly it successfully. And one of the ki- ki- interesting things about this and where this t- pertains real, uh, heavily to our sto- story, what Langley did is do all of his flights on the Potomac River. He created a launching device, actually like a, a sort of like a mini aircraft carrier. And the reason he was doing on the in the Potomac is that the, the woods and everything around it, he could control the environment. As, as best he could. Whereas the Wright brothers used the design point of having a lot of wind. And one of the things that was really important to them is making sure that they could have the gears to adjust and make the flight adapt to the, to the weather. And that turned out to be the critical success factor because aerodynamics are so unpredictable that you need to be able to create tools for it. And that's not something that uh, Samuel Langley factored in. So basically, with $2 million, a star-studded cast, a guy who's got an incredible success track record behind him, with a lot of uh, great science behind it and great minds, was beaten out by a bunch of guys who were bike mechanics who really just worked on uh, confronting the complexity and repeating it, repeating it, and repeating it. That's our story. Great story. I love that. And also just a little tidbit on that that I remember is the Wright brothers actually figured out how to operate on three axes. And that's why, because those little adjustments you're talking about, not just two up and down, left and right, they had to figure out the third axis. And that's what one of the, one of the little things that made it uh, work, but that's a great story um, that I remember. I got to ask. So So what, what the heck does that have to do with sales enablement? So what, well, here's what we're get, here's how it ties together. One of the things that we're talking about is stratocution, and we've been talking about this concept of stratocution for some time. And one of the things when we think about strategy is we think about, hey, let's hire in a Bain and McKenzie or people like that to go do the studying. And certainly on a sheet of paper, if we were betting people, most of us, if we were forced to bet, we would probably would have bet on Langley's team instead of the Wright brothers' team. The issue is what the Wright brothers did that the Langley team didn't do 
was lean in on the complexity and tinker and tinker and constantly whittle and change and make rapid adjustments in day-to-day based on specific observations by leaning into the complexity. And that's really what we're talking about here is that's really the role of orchestration is being able to think strategically. So in other words, have a vision of what you want to do. And at this point in time, no one in the world had, had created a manned flight, uh, flight apparatus. However, in order to make it work, you have to be on the ground doing the work and balancing between both of those different points. So that's really what our what our goal is of how do we make this idea of stratocution come to life? What does an orchestrator do and how do you activate success? That's great. And to help us with that topic, we've got a special guest, somebody who's living in that that space of stratocution, orchestration and making it work. It's Amy Benoit. How you doing, Amy? Hey guys, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks for being here. So let me introduce you a little bit. You and I go back to the SES conference in 2019, where you and I first met. And uh, we actually um, broke bread together at the sales hood meeting with Eli Cohen. And uh, you and I talked there. We had Eric Starrett with us and actually Scott was there as well. And he had his simpletist uh, jacket on, <laughs> lab coat. And uh, you and I t- chatted a little bit, and we've been in touch ever since. And we've been talking about the concept of activating a team, enrolling uh, the strategic view with the executive team, and then cascading that down through the organization and across the organization to get the right people involved. So I'm, I'm glad you're here on the podcast with us to unpack these concepts. And can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure can. Thank you. A couple things just from your story. Langley is from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, as am I. I am now living in San Diego, but born and raised natively to the Boston area. And similar to the Wright brothers, I would say one of my approaches to my work is leveraging experimentation. And I'm always trying to, as you said, tinker to make sure that we are doing things to create value. Um, I'm a consultant. I started a business a couple years ago and helping executives make decisions. And once we have those priorities, making them into reality as fast as possible. I've learned over the years that if you state the obvious, Uh, and create some action-oriented plans and and you get the buy-in from the right people, you really can create the energy to move and make momentum for those plans that you need in place. Um, I help organizations operate to scale and, and more smoothly, and it's really fun to do. I always say that, um, I'm a persistent person who believes in ambitious goals. And if, if you hire me, I provide you with this impetus. If you're a dreamer to kind of stop dreaming and just do it. And I think that oftentimes is, is the difference between getting things done and, and not just starting. That's certainly one of the things that I appreciate about you is uh, that idea of uh, engaging and getting things done. And so back to the, the centering story, uh, when you think about flight, uh, it's interesting. It seems simple. You get up in the air and you fly. Uh, but when you look at what it takes to figure that out, and I love the word tinkering, 
uh, the Wright brothers did a lot of that tinkering and they had to figure out things like how much, uh, you know, how, how do you provide the thrust? How do you uh, provide the lift? Um, how do you, you know, make it light enough to get off the ground? And then, as I mentioned, you know, this idea of how do you control three dimensions or three axes? So let's start with that centering story and the concept of tinkering. I'd love to hear from you, Amy, just what are you tinkering with right now? And, and do you have any examples of, of how you're, you're in that space trying to figure it out to, to tackle that complexity and operate on multiple axes? Side note, I have flown a 1947 Cessna, <laughs> which is completely off topic. But now that we're talking about planes, I feel like I need to say that. That's, that's the thing about planes is they, they, if, you, if you maintain them, they last a long, long time. That was a cool story. We can get back to that at the end. But my client right now, I, I have a client that I'm working with and I'm working to build continuous learning and sustain effectiveness in this organization. That's a big goal to take on and something that is in need of a lot of advising and continual work. Uh, if I if I give you some background to this, I think it might help just from the terms of what I'm working with, particularly with this client and where sure. I get a little hairy. Sure. Um, at the beginning of this year, this particular business unit and the whole company merged into a very public software company. Um, and it wasn't determined until the end of Q1, which ended in April for this fiscal year, um, that they were going to actually remain within this larger organization. And the business unit then at the beginning of May started to be able to create their go-to-market strategy and get financial metrics, goals, and everything like this. Um, and they brought me in to partner with them to develop their go-to-market strategy and actually just build this culture of effectiveness. They wouldn't call it that. We're calling it that. They just want their folks to hit their goals. A huge plan for me, and typically you will have an annual kickoff or something with companies. There wasn't one this year because they passed the threshold of kickoff and then there was the pandemic. Um, so we created a business unit kickoff or what I'll call an offsite virtually, of course. Um, we needed to, to figure out why we were doing this and the goals for the entire organization first and foremost. And I think that's oftentimes where business leaders and people in general lose focus. You know, they're trying to kind of just tackle everything and anything that comes their way. And in enablement and in life, a lot of folks lose traction because of this, because they're just like, all right, here's the open area. I hope something resonates. Whatever it does, we're going to, you know, lean on, on that and make it work. Um, I had to pair back with the vice president and really focus more on helping them see what the plan of attack was going to be and focus in on that, like laser sharp. 
So let me, let me unpack this a little bit, right? So you have this situation where a lot of variables, right? So leaning into the, we're using this story as a bit of a proxy here, uh, figuring out and tinkering, we, you know, we've got our, our leather helmets on <laughs> the right, right brother style. And we're, we're trying to figure this out. So, you know, what are the things that are known and, and, and a bit unknown? So we know that there's this need to either communicate or drive change with the sales team because the merger is happening. We know that there needs to be some sort of uh, cascade of the strategy, it sounds like, uh, because of that. And then there's uh, this idea of driving the, the results and the why um, that you're, you're alluding to, right? But then there's these variables like COVID, we're not going to be in person, we're going to have to figure out something um, else. And I can, I can imagine that there's a lot of questions in that, right? Is this a, a huge event where we strap everybody to chairs for three days? Is this, you know, um, a couple hours a day? You know, how do we adjust for these conditions, uh, and, and make this um, land, right? So let's stay at that level. Tell us a little bit about um, how did you guys go about figuring this out and what, what did some of those conversations look like? Because I would imagine there's some tension there between uh, I've seen, you know, this idea of let's keep doing what we've always done and just move it all virtual versus, to your point, driving the why. Yeah, so if we go a layer above and we figure out that, the team has now set priorities. And one of the priorities is, of course, hitting quota. However, we have a new business. We're in a whole new organization. So perhaps our life is staying the same, but the context around our life changes. And for this team, what that meant was the fear of the unknown and really a need to understand, does my messaging change? Part of understanding that and unpacking that in this continuous learning effectiveness was to create a team offsite. And that would do two things, improve employee engagement And I say that, and I do also mean talent retention, um, and also help you to, as a sales organization, hit your numbers because the messaging aligns. The concept of going virtual, we ebbed and flowed in and out of throughout the, uh, the few weeks that we were planning this. Originally, it was perhaps the leadership team will get together and everyone else will be virtual. Um, we ended up doing a full, complete virtual based off of the environment and focused on just the content that we were delivering. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you, what I'm, what I'm seeing in my mind's eye, you know, as, as we're thinking about this, it's there's balancing acts or there's trade-offs. You're trading off or balancing the long-term with the short-term in one, one situation, uh, as you think about this, there's a need to move fast uh, at the same time, be programmatic and not random, right? And then uh, you're also really, there's this juxtaposition or this uh, trade-off between what the executives want to tackle versus what the reality of the reps are and where their heads are at, for example. And then you've got the uh, the time challenge, right? There's 
uh, we have we have a certain amount of time. How are we going to use that wisely? Uh, so those are those are some of the things that you're you're alluding to here in this gap between strategy and tactics. Because what I'm not hearing is, hey, we need to do some sort of offsite. Let's go. Is it done yet? You know, what are we doing? Where's our where's our agenda? You know, the next day, you said it take it's taken a couple of weeks to plan that out and plan that through. Yeah, right. you know, usually these take months, you know, if not half of a year to really plan and formulate. And so we went, we, gosh, we measured this in days instead of uh, months or weeks. Um, but I would say timing was important because we're already a, a quarter into the year. We're talking April, end of April, the quarter started in February, and we have to hit our numbers and we have not yet brought the team together for that beginning of the year motivational um inspiring kind of collaboration so timing was a a source of debate and as the leaders and i got together it went back and forth a couple weeks of do we want to have this rolled out through multiple weeks and months or do we want it to just be a a one to two day something and then after that do follow on uh we went back and forth but we ultimately decided that it would be four hours one time that will be the catalyst for the enablement strategy that we developed for the year that was my mindset and the story that I was sharing with the executive team, um, knowing that they were not fully on board yet. And to get there, in part, it's not just the sales folks that I was educating and getting their buy-in. Once this program ran out, my hope was the leadership would say, we did this, it was effective, now we can do a bigger long-term strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. And on uh, one of the, the LinkedIn posts that you had, I remember you were writing about, um, look, I don't, it's not really about the agenda. It's about this idea that strategy, we have to execute the strategy, right? Strategy without the ability to execute is worthless and execution without a strategy is reckless. Love this comment because a lot of folks in positions that are, you know, they've been working for 15 years and they want to do less tactics and the way that I see it, yes, you know, you want to be in part of that strategic conversation, but it takes a lot of tactics to get the wheels moving and continuously driving the momentum. A lot of the work that I do, I will say, I think that it's the energy part of it. That's the hardest part and takes the most buy-in once you see that it's working and the wheels are turning, you can then start leaning the tactics over to other parties and building more and more strategy. Yeah, so it's a plan and refine based on reality through doing, through tinkering, through... Yep. Learn by know. doing. Yep, learn by doing and... And that, that way you're in tune with the reality, much like the Wright brothers were, or, you know, Langley wasn't, you know, um, he was trying to control the environment. Uh, the Wright brothers were trying to, you know, harness it, so to speak, or use it to their advantage. Right. That's, that's what I'm also getting the, 
kind of the the vibe from you here is look these the covid thing to many could be a uh, a negative but how do we use it for an advantage um this this uh, trade-off decision uh, of the amount of time we're going to spend on something um and, and the, all these decisions we need to make how do we use that to our advantage um the fact that we just went through a merger how do we use that to our advantage right instead of the woe is me you know, uh, you know, all these things are happening to us and let's just get it done, right? Yes, I think that the flow was helpful because we had, we were able to focus our entire offsite on one, one thing. You know, we developed a go-to-market strategy. We want to put that in front of the team. We need them to receive that um, and and not worry about anything else. So oftentimes you do a lot of events, experiences, and there's a lot that is being um, brought in to really help enable the team. But it can be so much that you don't get what you're supposed to be focusing on. So for this, it worked in our favor that we – we're able to focus solely on something. And I think that that was that one piece of my puzzle that um, was game changing to the experience. Yeah. And that's great. Um, when you look at the, uh, that's another trade off too, right? So you're talking about motivation and people being motivated. And at the same time, you're talking about rolling out the go to market strategy, right? So that's, those are yet, you know, some other, variables here. And then the one thing, focus on the one thing versus the many. And this, this uh, allows people to focus. And Scott, one of the things that you and I've talked about, I'd love to bring you in here is this concept of focus and, and really getting energy and momentum behind something. And that's what's coming to my mind here is, you know, we're not, we're not in the, the throes of the agenda. How did Amy pull off an agenda? What we're trying to do here in this conversation is at the you know, stratocution level is figure out the why and the what, so to speak, and, and really harness the energy of, of the people to do that. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's th- – thank you, Brian. I want to um, help create some room to really give this point more focus. I've been involved in a lot of transformation projects. Uh, the ones that fail, the energy kills it. It's the energy. And – What's difficult is that I've tried, I have, it, it's, it's very hard to bring that up, particularly with CFOs. I, I literally got called a crystal loving hippie one time. And if you know anything about me, you would know how far off that is uh, in real life. But I literally called, got called that. And yeah. so I, I think that concept of energy is really important. I think we tend to manifest it as a people thing. It's, it's a collaboration thing. It's a how we get done thing. It's a, it's a momentum. Momentum. And I think one of the things that Amy said really early on is, hey, look, um, whenever you do something new that has, um, that has a, a deadline associated with it and a short time cycle, you're dealing with a lot of fear. And when people are scared, you don't get their best effort. <laughs> you get the worst of humanity uh, when, when you're dealing with fear. Yet, in order to do something different, you have to lead and you have to get people to be their best of. So part of that energy, I think, really, um, really resonates with, with me. Amy, can you describe a little bit what you mean by energy? 
like g- give it some context so that other people who might talk about it won't uh, won't run into being called a crystal loving hippie by other CFOs. Sure, I find unlocking energy means that there are so many ways to do that, but. For me, the way that I I think about this is people like to give back. And oftentimes in organizations, you have these people that are doing their day-to-day jobs and they would be so happy to share what they're doing or collaborate on a project that is a little out of scope. And that type of opportunity for them unleashes this excitement, empowerment, energy, whatever you want to talk positive though. And if you have enough of that and you receive and you're able to um, tie it in to that focal point, your momentum is going to be much higher than you just having the three or four folks at the top of the business doing it day in and day out. And you'll be able to get so much more insights from the people in the business. And that's how I kind of unlock energy and create momentum. Yeah, that's great. How critical. Wait a second. That sounds a little kumbaya-ish to me. Uh, Part of the, part of the challenge that you've got are, so let's, let's take the the notion that people do want to give back, which I agree completely. What happens to the people who want to give back where they basically should on everybody else? Uh, That's something that Brian's coined where people want to lecture other people and say, this is how you should do it. This is how you should do it. This is how you should do it. Doesn't that alienate the rest of the team? So how do you balance the, the fact of there is that raw energy? I agree with you completely that people want to either help or contribute or be seen as valuable. How do you harness all of those, uh, all of those and get them into, you know, here's a crystal word, hit harmony uh, or some sort of co- co- cohesion because there's, you know, frankly, there's, there's some skull cracking that has to happen too. Like it's not all like all positivity, right? How do you balance all of those things and all of that energy? Or are you just the shamwell uh, for all that pain and you, you just take it? Like, what does that look like? You definitely have to facilitate it. It's not just we open up a door and say, hey, whatever you want to offer, we're going to offer. So there's a vetting process that goes through what is being shared and what should be then shared to the masses. Tribal knowledge is important. Sharing best practices, case story, you know, studies, things like this are very valuable. However, we need to vet them as a leadership team to make sure that it's scaled and it makes sense across the board and that it's not just a a loud, angry person that would go against the goals of what right. we're trying to do. So you got two, two forms of tribal knowledge, though, right? You have the tribal knowledge of the group of people whom are literally building the new thing as they speak, you know, tinkering around like the Wright brothers. And then you have the tribal knowledge of the host organization, right? You're, so you're preparing the transplant, right? The, the organ to be transplanted in. How do you keep the host from rejecting the transplant? Because that is a different form of tribal knowledge. And since they're not getting to participate in the thing that you're building, how do you, how do you balance that? 
It takes master facilitation. And I, I am trying to figure out how I put into words what I do because there does seem to be a way, a benevolent dictatorship of Amy that comes across in a caring, empathetic way where people, um, where we receive what they're trying to do. However, if it's not aligned to the goals, then we redirect it to something else. Not to say we don't have a leader discuss it with them and collaborate to get something out of that to bring to the broader team um, to motivate and inspire everyone, but it won't be shared at the organizational level. And I really think that that's a part of proper communication and level setting at the beginning. Not to say everyone, whatever you say is going to be able to be used. Right. That wouldn't be a proper level set. But if you say we are looking for you to share your best practices, once you do, we're going to vet them and we're going to go through and see which ones work. If you go back to the person and say, hey, this was great. Here's some feedback. You know, we're going to use it in this way versus this way. I've not experienced the, the overly angry person. Yeah, and, and we're in the space of, of orchestration with this. I just wanted to be be clear, right? Um, and, and that's why I was asking Amy, just in this space, what does it feel like? And I, I think Scott's chiming in has really been helpful here to say, you know, not only are you making trade-offs on the strategy tactics piece, stratication, there's some trade-offs here in orchestration. And it is really hard um, to put into words. And, you know, so some of the things that, that I would – get your, get your reaction on here. Let me, let me test some of these things out and you can react. Um, I, I believe there's, there's, there's a set of principles that exist in this space of orchestration. So when I say the word principles, it's, it's things like, you know, what, what are we doing with an idea? What are we really focused on achieving? And, 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 and to some extent, a little bit around, you know, how we're going to work together. What's your reaction to that concept of, some principles in this orchestration space. Principles sound like guardrails. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're going to orchestrate having a plan or having a frame of it and where the people are going to work within scope, makes sense. And that's kind of what principles sounds like to me. Yeah, I like the concept of guardrails. Yeah. What's in bounds, out of bounds, you know, what game are we playing? I don't know how many times, you know, I've had to bring back the team to, because the first thing you always want to do, develop goals to your plan, right? And while we were planning this and there was a, a working team of leaders, five folks, I had to continue to come back and say, hey, look, this is what we're trying to do. Anything that we design needs to be centered around this, you know, kind of keeping the guardrails in place because oftentimes folks will forget, you know, and, and just want to conquer and boil the ocean. Right. Yeah. And, and one of those principles is like, um, look, you know, people want to give their best and they want to be their best. Um, but let's make sure the best idea leaves the room. You know, what's, what's the best idea for this outcome? That could be a principle too. In other words, we're not going to do it just because everybody says, or because one person says, we're going to vet it like you, like you talked about. We're going to vet it with leadership or 
In this case, we're going to vet it as a team against the outcome using our guardrails, for example. Right? Yep. And sometimes consensus is a principle. You know, it doesn't need to be the head person to make the decisions. If we get critical mass in the right time, that's what we go for. And we set those parameters as a as a consultant, I always start with that, you know, what are we going to do to start moving the needle faster? Because that's how I'm helping you outwit your competition. So do we believe in consensus? Great. Let's go. Yeah. And I also like this idea of the, you know, in this space, the outcome or the goal. And I think a lot of teams enter into the work and they're not really clear on what the outcome is. The Wright brothers outcome was, was, we're going to, we're going to get this airplane in the air. That's the same outcome as Langley. We're going to get this in the air. But the principles that they had to work within were completely different. Langley was, we're going to, our principles are around, we're going to control the environment. We're going to factor in and we're going to minimize the wind. We're going to minimize everything else. In fact, we're going to do it right here outside of Washington, D.C., where we can watch, everybody can watch us and see how awesome we are with our $2 million. You know, that's a, that's a set of principles that he operated within. On the Wright Brothers side, it's like we're going we're gonna to wheel our bicycle <laughs> gears and flimsy apparatus to a, a dune, and, uh, you know, uh, we may get killed. We're not sure. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to harness the environment, and uh, we're going to figure it out as we go. That's a whole different set of principles. And those two things are, you know, if you took somebody who's doing it Wright Brothers style and you, and you, you put them in the Langley situation – and vice versa, you took a Langley person who has that set of principles and put them in a Wright Brothers situation. Um, you know, to me, this is the challenge of orchestration. You know, as the a- other thing here is, especially during this time, folks are having difficulties reimagining what they, you know, converting experiences from live to virtual. And you have to remember what's our goal. It might look different than what you've experienced in the past, but we have to completely, you know, create a goal and then say, we might get to it in a different way. You know, the Wright brothers are not going to be showing it off when they're trying it out, but their goal is the same. We want to be able to fly. Right. We don't have all the money or the resources. So, you know, it might be rinky dink and that's okay. And, if we get to fly, that's still an accomplishment. So a lot of the, the retraining of our brains to say we do not have to go this exact same way that we've always done or thought we always had to do to reach this particular goal is something that um, a lot of my executives are struggling with. Yeah. And I, I think so my, one of my working hypotheses in this is that the goals are still the same, you know, um, we still have to close deals. We still have to get in front of executives. We still have to get our airplanes in the air. You know, those goals haven't changed post COVID, but the principles and uh, the kind of the mental models or the framing of that has completely changed. The environments completely changed. So that's what I'm outlining here in this concept of orchestration is orchestrating a whole new sense set of principles to unlock energy and get the best out of people. Like you're talking about, Um, when they, you know, some of that work involves reframing what's really important, like you're talking about, and then getting the little quick wins, like you also shared. So um, I think these are good analogs in this space of of orchestration 
you know, people might not be equipped to do this and they might need some help and new sets of skills. They might have to unlearn some things, et cetera. Have you seen that happen at all? I feel like I've always had to retrain adults. Um, You know, adult learning is difficult and it's not as simple as childhood learning because you just ingest as a child all of the information. As an adult, you already have preconceived notions and concepts Um, intelligence, you know, and obviously with the internet, you can find anything and debate to the death, but it has not changed from like a core of how I operate because I'm always up against those executive sales folks who say, we don't need this, you know, that that's kind of the back burner or, you know, all we need to do is hit our numbers when really, if you don't have a system in place, it's not going to operate to scale. So what I'm seeing here through the COVID times is actually folks now seeing that they have to change the way that they're doing things. You know, not, nothing, nothing new to us, but they're now giving some space to that too. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing that I think that is the struggle is what does it mean to perform? Uh, what does performance really look like? And having the performance conversation right now uh, is a bit difficult. Um, and I, I've actually you know, encouraged people to say, you know, your value as a human being in this sense right now, in this space right now, the, the value you have is between your ears. It's your brain. Use it. You've got to use your brain and just figure it out. Uh, and encouraging people to do that. Um, is, is a bit scary on one hand and, and uh, a good reminder on the other. But this idea of what is performance, because a lot of the challenge that I've seen is performance equals we're comfortable and happy in our job and we're not overworked. That's how some people define performance, literally. Uh, if I'm happy, I'm performing. Um, that's, not the, that's not the definition of performance in a Wright Brothers situation. Um, it's it's making progress towards the outcome and the goal. So, you know, that's, that's part of the, the thing I think that's happening. And there's many more um, that I'd love to unpack in this space. But the reason why I wanted to draw, draw some of these distinctions in this orchestration layer is this will determine how and what you activate, right? And there's a whole bunch of tactics there that we'll, 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 we'll save for another time. But the way in which uh, you process this as an orchestrator and frame these things out, uh, determine what you activate. So if you're not framing out guardrails, if you're not framing out the definition of performance, if you're not uh, framing out the vision and the goal with clarity, if you're not framing out what it means to contribute an idea and have the best idea leave the room, uh, these things all show up when it's time to activate. You know, they're going to they're gonna get you. I think it's interesting that you share the principles ahead of time. So do you get buy-in when you do that? You know, here's, sometimes you have the principles, but the, mm-hmm. the performance and the team, Yeah. often what I have to do because the language that I'm in and the, the goals for the executives that I work with, I have to almost have a secret weapon to, to share my insights 
once we've already established um, program, you know, the, the key to my success has been not giving them too much detail about the energy and the, you know, the, the language that I would use as a professional within this space and just start doing it and then have them see the successes and then back into the intellect of enablement or orchestration. Because if I start with that, they look at me and and to Scott's earlier point, you know, whether they call me a woo woo for talking about energy work or just, you know, think I'm a teacher because I'm doing enablement. So I have to just sometimes start it and start just doing very big picture, like, you know, effectiveness and without using any of these words, but so that's something I also thought about all the articles I'm reading right now about learning programs, quote unquote, becoming a key strategic imperative right now, where we all know that these things have been happening for the last 15 years and large. Those are usually, those are usually written by learning people. <laughs> Completely. Right. So it's like, yes, we're all getting on board which is fantastic though it's there's been tried and true ways to do this for years we're iterating now as we should be um and using more tools or tech whatever you want to say but the fundamentals have been there for forever yeah that's right and i love that so um my my last word on this and then i'll, I'll stop talking and let scott take us take us home here and take us out but this idea of um being clear on where you stand. So to your point, Amy, not bombarding people on the front end with let's talk principles and let's talk about our definition of performance, but being clear on as an orchestrator, what these things are and what these things mean and what your real purpose is on the team to orchestrate success uh, and thinking about this stuff beforehand, I think is critical. And that's to me, that's what that's called leadership, right? So for our listeners out there, tying back to our, Uh, being heroic framework, these concepts that we talked about in earlier episodes, uh, to me, are directly related to operating in the the space of an orchestrator. So Scott, I'll pass it over to you. Any uh, last words, so to speak, from your perspective? And and, uh, how how would you recap and synthesize what Amy and I have been talking about? I want to leave with with a quote that I think is very pertinent. It's from Albert Einstein. Insanity is doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. And really, that's sort of the crux. Uh, Brian, you and Amy were talking earlier on about the goals not changing. That's, that's, that's been true with humanity forever with sales. We always want to sell more things to more people at a higher price point. Duh. The issue is the environment around us has changed, and it's not just COVID. The, the world in sales has been very... Um, unproductive and inefficient for some time, COVID's frankly just exposing it uh, and making it comfortable to talk about. And I think that's, that's, I think that's a really key point here that we're, we're talking about these kinds of things and the need for orchestration. And the other thing that the the second point that I want to highlight is something that Amy said when I was challenging her a little bit about energy is, um, uh, she she talked about this need of uh, a benevolent dictator, I think was the term that she had. One of the things that's critical when you're actually having people change to do to approach a problem in a way that they haven't seen before, 
the muscle memory of always have done it. You know, these are all the ways that I've done it to why I'm in this position of leadership in the first place. And you're telling me none of that's going to work. Well, I'm not saying none of it is, but I'm saying the environment's different right now and it's not working. That's what I'm saying. So let's quit being insane and expecting doing the things over and over again to, to have a different result. And frankly, guys, that takes courage. So you have to st- you have to get a firm position. You have to have the courage to stick to it. And then you got to be able to stick to your guns. That's really the, the point of uh, defining principles. So for everybody's benefit, we identified, when I say we, the, when we started the Sales Enablement Society, uh, built, I broke, built principles and led with them. And when things worked, people followed the principles. When things didn't work, people didn't follow the principles. It was that cut and dry. Principle number one was lead with you, which I think Amy did a great job about. I'm going to comment on that. Principle number two was have courage. And that means the person who's leading has to have hyper courage That's why we created the Being Heroic Framework. You have to know that you're actually leading. And leading means directing the the energy, confronting these these repeatable patterns and moving forward. So those are some key key summary points. What I want to do is highlight out, and um, if you're listening to that, you're probably wondering like, well, give me the summary, give me the takeaway. Well, I think if you're, if you're thinking that way, you're probably not ready to be an orchestrator yet, honestly. Uh, what you have to do is lean into, how do I empathize with what Amy's saying? That whole conversation that her and I were having about energy is a tough conversation to have, and it's one that we don't have words for yet. The whole concept of uh, how do we reset goals and get people to, to create that momentum, that's, these, these are, that's vocabulary we haven't set yet. The idea, something that I agree completely with what Amy said, which is you just got to get people going. Boy, can people overthink things to death. And then by the time you've thought through it where you're comfortable, six months have gone by and you lost your opportunity. You have to get started and get moving. But how do you get the funding to be able to do it when the people who have the money have to have a bigger project plan? It means we have to change even how we think about project plans and what we're doing and get into this motion of, um, of sprints and workflows. So there's a whole bunch of impl- implications here. And the reason that we're doing these podcasts, the way that we're doing them, is so that you can learn from people who are actually doing it, the tinkerers, the people who are really obsessed with making flight happen. And to kind of pull this back forward and why I really love the centering story is the people in the Wright Brothers worked because they did both. They concentrated on the big picture. We're going to fly. To Brian's point, he mentioned earlier on, they were at risk of dying. They put their lives on the line. At worst, the Langley team, they would crash into the Potomac River from what, 20 feet high? Big deal. You're, you know, if you can't swim, you're at risk, but I doubt anybody that they have out there would be a swimmer. Whereas, the Wright brothers risked their lives. They went all in. And that's courage. And these are the kinds of things that we need to take. So I hope if you're listening to this, we really put Amy on the spot. If you don't know Amy, Amy's an introvert. I, I know that she's probably going to have uh, some decompression time after this because we talked about this afterwards about the energy ex- exhibited. But we really put her on the spot. And you got to hear exactly what she's thinking and what gears are, are dealing with in her brain. 
please listen to that and put yourself in those shoes and don't listen to it passively like you're studying it like the Langley team. Be the be Orville um, and uh, Wilbur. You, you, Orville and Wilbur Wright. Thank you. You can be like them and recognize that they're probably going to be paying super attention because they're putting their lives at risk. And I'm not asking you, obviously, to put your life at risk for your job, but your career, you need to be thinking about it with that kind of importance if you really want to be in that orchestrator role. And we saw a lot of that courage here in this podcast right now from Amy. And, uh, you know, these are the reasons why I'm such a big fan of yours, Amy, that you continue to put yourself out that there. You lead with vulnerability and strength at the same time. You're willing to say exactly what's on your mind in the moment and think it through. And you got put on the spot a lot and you thought it through and you publish your thinking. And that's the kind of stuff that we all need because this is a new role. These are new uh, things that we're being asked to do in a new time. And this is what you need to do to not be insane and do the same things over and over again and uh, expect a different result. It's not going to happen. We have to do things differently. And that's the purpose of this podcast. So those are those are my uh, those are my wrap up thoughts. Uh, Amy, Brian, and any or any reactions? I have a thought. Yes. So there's a principle. If we're going back to principles um, that I use, and it's based off of Agile. And if you're a software developer, you know it. But it's really just you you build something, you you put it together, you you measure it, and then you learn from it. And and that cycle just continues. And it's you know whenever anyone says oh, you're going to build something and then you can just leave it and it can sit and it can operate by itself forever. That's not going to happen. You know, we all have to, we're all continuously learning. And if you take those learnings and rework anything you're doing, it's just going to get better. Um, and that's what I think of as principles when I'm, when I'm doing any of my work. It's, you know, we're going to build something here and it's going to be a most viable product to get out the door. And then once we get it out the door, we'll get feedback on it and we'll make it better. And if you're with me here, you know, buy in from the executive or whomever your partner is, then know that it's not that just an end result that you're putting out and it's going to be the last thing. It's going to be a continual work in progress. That's right. Thanks so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. And for everybody else uh, listening out there, these are the types of conversations that really get Scott and I excited and Amy as well. So feel free to reach out to us uh, anytime and let's talk this stuff through. We need more Orville and Wilbur rights uh, as well. So, uh, you know, keep uh, testing and learning with us and, and we appreciate your feedback as always. Check out the, the latest episodes. Uh, we're, we're over 50 now and that's great. And uh, thanks so much for your time, Amy. Appreciate it. And Scott, uh, as always, thanks for drawing these things out. We'll see you guys on the next show. Take care. Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, please make sure you've subscribed to our show. If you have an idea of what Scott and Brian can cover in a future podcast or have a story to share, please email them at engage at orchestratesales.com. You can also connect with them online by going to orchestratesales.com, following them on Twitter, or sending them a LinkedIn connection request.